Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Hello, welcome to another bonus episode for Family Business Week. We are on Thursday now and the celebrations continue right the way through till tomorrow. Fantastic interview coming tomorrow with Sir John Timpson, so be sure to catch that. But on today's show, I am talking to Jonathan Folder from HMG Paints. Now, from the second Jonathan says hello, you will hear the enthusiasm with which he approached this interview. And that enthusiasm is obvious within the business. The culture that they have created at HMG Paints is an enviable one. And it's, as I say, listening to Jonathan, you will soon understand Um, why the culture there is so positive and um, attractive. Now, it is Family Business Week this week, so please do make sure that you are posting as much as you can to social media to raise awareness of the fantastic work that family businesses do, that we celebrate the contribution, the huge contribution that they make to um, the UK economy. If you are listening to this outside the UK, get involved anyway. Um, Family businesses are special across the globe, so please do get involved on social media. The Twitter accounts to follow are at Family Biz Week and at IFB underscore UK. You can also follow the podcast account, which is at FamBizPodcast. And please use the hashtag FamilyBizWeek. And share photos, share what you're doing to celebrate the week. It is nearly the weekend, so please do add what you are doing to celebrate uh, on that social media feed. And make sure you check out the website, which is FamilyBusinessWeek.co.uk. Lots of ideas there for how to celebrate including asking your MP to come and visit Um, might be a bit late to do that this week but certainly an idea to help showcase what it is that you do um, for your local communities so I will pass over to Jonathan and my conversation and uh, enjoy it I'm sure it will leave you um, energized um, and with a big smile on your face. So please do enjoy and, and yeah, get involved on social media. Firstly, Jonathan, thank you for agreeing to come on the show and uh, how are you doing today? Very good indeed. Thank you very much for having me back as well, Russell. It's, um, it's good to be back with you. Um, and uh, obviously we're looking forward to having a good chat today. Fantastic. Um, so to, to kick us off, I think the best thing to do would be to give a bit of background about who you are, what you do and how you be- became involved in working within um, HMG Paints. 
Absolutely. So first and foremost, um, I'm a fifth generation in our family business, HMG Paints, um, which was established in Manchester in 1930. Um, we're still here, but incidentally, in North Manchester, we're still, still doing what we do. Um, essentially, if we go right back to the beginning of time, so I'm going to talk a little bit about how I got into the family business and why I got into the family business. I'm going to go back to primary school first. Okay. And my best friend at primary school, his dad owned a sweet shop in Altrincham uh-huh. and used to bring home flying saucers and chocolate cigarettes that he brought <laughs> into school. So you can imagine when my dad had come back home, he'd bring back like a gallon of epoxy primer. That was <laughs> something a little bit different, really. Yeah, you get into trouble. You get into trouble in the school playground swapping those kind of things, don't you? Indeed, yeah. It's not quite sort of football cards, um, <laughs> but very different. And to be honest, quite difficult to understand as a sort of five, six-year-old. So my very first memories of paint and the industry in general is going downstairs in our house um, with my dad into our garage where we've got a little paint laboratory and mixing paints together on a Saturday morning with my dad, um, learning about coatings and um, and surface coatings. So you can imagine you're surrounded by a, a culture there of sort of passion, enthusiasm from my father, my grandfather, my uncle in the business. And you sort of can't help to get a little bit interested at that stage. Um, my very first job in the business was age probably seven years old, packing tubes of adhesive in our tube room for pocket money. So, you know, the sort of child labour type things don't really yeah. apply when you're in a family business. <laughs> um, and subsequent to that, you know, you jump the clock forward to about sort of age 13 or so. And if you'd asked me at that sort of age, what am I going to do when I grow up? I would have said professional footballer. Uh-huh. Certainly wouldn't have said working in the paint industry in our family business. Uh-huh. So move the clock forward again. Um, and, you know, you get sort of work experience age. And I started doing a little bit of work in the business, working sort of around the department, putting labels on cans, lugging 25 kilo bags and putting them in the master mix. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and in general, sort of uh, learning about the business and started to really, really, really love the paint industry. Um, there's the old adage of sort of it's as boring as watching paint dry. <laughs> and for people who aren't really involved with paint, they'll immediately think of just that stuff that you put on your walls when you want to change your walls from sort of like a light creamy colour to a slightly different shade of a creamy (laughs) colour. But of course, you know, for me and for, you know, us as a family business, um, you know, paint is the most frequently seen man-made object on earth. And one of the most, if not the most important inventions ever created for art, science and ecology. Absolutely. So once you sort of really get into paint, it's a fascinating industry to work in. And you can imagine, surrounded by the enthusiasm of the family, you very easily get hooked. And I'm 12 years full time in and probably 31 years from birth, um, you know, uh, sort of indoctrinated into the paint industry. Uh (laughs) Fantastic. And one thing that strikes me already in in terms of... um, 
the the culture and you mentioned it in uh, in the, the the introduction there is the amount of passion that there is for the business and the fact you're fifth generation and that passion is still coming across again is testament that as you say some people would consider paint to be a relatively um, straightforward um, sort of industry but, but one of the things yes. that hugely um, opened my eyes was when you you went through in your presentation we'll, we'll get onto it a, a bit later on maybe um, all the different things that that you paint and as you say it's the most seen man-made thing in in the world and it's hugely complex and there's a lot of technology that goes behind it but that what's coming across is already that as a fifth generation, there's that passion there to to, to help drive the business and, and grow the business. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, um, I mean, you know, we we have a, a sort of unofficial official strap line, which is a passion for paint. Always sounds a bit cheesy, um, but uh, but you know, it really rings true. I mean, you talk about many different industries. We have a, a, a part of another business philosophy, which is security through diversity. So we have a myriad of different industries that we're involved in. Um, and you know, giving a few examples, you're involved in the automotive industry. So people like Aston Martin, Jaguar Land Rover, all the way through to sort of your big commercial vehicles, such as buses, trailers and trains, right the way through from the sort of Flying Scotsman, the UK's probably most iconic train, through to um, yeah, the brand new sort of Virgin Pendolinos. Um, yeah, we've done the paint in the past for people like Euro Disney, um, yeah, the, the, sort of, yeah, the building of Euro Disney, uh, TV programs such as Arden Animations, Wallace and Gromit, uh, Harry Potter, James Bond. Um, and you know, a huge myriad of other different things, you know, even like the UK US space agencies. Um, so you can imagine that one day you're looking at um, the new space rocket that's being developed, you know, for the you know, manned flight from the UK. The next day you're looking at a train, the next day you're at Aston Martin, and the day after that you're looking at skin-safe elephant paint for a festival over in India. <laughs> it's an incredibly diverse industry where you yeah. get to see a bit of everything. Which is fantastic, and and the the business didn't start doing all of those things, uh, unless I'm mistaken. It, it it had quite humble beginnings, didn't it? In terms of <laughs> very how humble it came indeed. <laughs> and so maybe just I mean the the topic of today's chat is is culture, uh, but but to give some context around how the business has developed and grown to to where it is today, perhaps we could go back to the the early days of the the business to give it that context. Yeah, absolutely. Well, starting from the the absolute beginning of history, the business was established in 1930, October 1930, by my great-grandfather, Herbert Folder. Um, He basically used every single penny of money that he owned to set up the business. Um, Before that, he was a shipping clerk, um, so he had no real um, sort of business experience, really. Um, because the business didn't have any money, he took his father out of retirement, so that's my great-great-grandfather, and said, right, Dad, I need two things from you. First is all of your pension money, because we don't have any money and we need to buy some machines. <laughs> Secondly, will you please come and work for me, but you're not going to get paid for it. <laughs> Where do I sign? And, and Of course, and, and by <laughs> some absolute miracle, my great-great-grandfather agreed to this, and um, H. Marcel Guest, as it was called back then, before we shortened our name to H. G. Paint, was born. So 
at that stage in our history, we made one product, which was called capping solution. And capping solution, essentially, you dip cork bottles into it to form essentially like a wax seal, but it was a paint seal around the, around the cork. So it was a very quick, drying and simple, cheap method for sealing cork bottles. And something that my grandfather discovered um, in about 1931, mid-1931, was if you took clear capping solution, because we only made one colour, which was clear, um, and put some sort of coloured pigment into it, what you actually ended up with was paint. Um, and so those were the first paints that we made. And we've still got my great-grandfather's original formulation book from 1931, when he came up with these very first few colours. Colour number six that he came up with was HMG Maroon, which is still our corporate colour of today. So from there, the story kind of advances. We, we've made quite a success out of coloured capping solution. And by 1935, we'd bought our first company car, a 1930 Model A Ford, which we've also still got. Um, as we as we continue our chats, Russell, you'll uh, you'll find out that we never throw anything away. So <laughs> keep everything. Um, and then by 1939, of course, the Second World War hit, and the small group of people that we had in the business at that time, about sort of eight or ten people, pretty much all of them went off to fight in the Second World War. So what was left was the old fogies, essentially, who were too old to go and fight and the youngsters who were too young to go and fight. So my great-grandfather at the time was too infirm to go and fight. You know, he couldn't walk very well at the time. You know, he was, he was not a particularly well man. He was left behind. But he took my grandfather, Brian Folder, out of school, aged 14, to work in the business. So, so at that time, there were only really three people working in the business. This is 1939. Um, that was my grandfather, age 14, Ronnie Hanvey, age 15, and Albert Moore, age 16. And those three young people essentially ran the business throughout the Second World War and kept the business going. So there's a big period after the Second World War finishes in terms of development. Things happen, we buy machinery, we get a bit bigger, going into different industries. And jumping almost to sort of like the tail end of the story... We're now the largest independent paint producer in the UK, which is something that we feel enormously proud of. Um, I think it's something that my great-grandfather would not believe if he could see the business as it stands today, comparative to um, like within his day. Um, and it's a testament to the people of HMG um, from 1930 through to 2018 in terms of you know what what has been built by you know, the greatest uh, paint making team for me in the entire world. Yeah, uh, and that responsibility that that um, I think if I'm getting the, the grandfather and the great grandfathers the right way round th that your grandfather was given at age 14. Did you say that that yes. responsibility to to manage and look after the family firm. Absolutely. And, and, and we really, really believe in that 1930s mentality. I mean, jumping forward to a, a slightly different topic, 
Um, recently, we set up an initiative called Next Generation Coatings, which was taking 10 young people from our, one of our local um, secondary schools, all aged 14, and giving them a decorative business area. So we gave them a department, we gave them um, you know, the sales, the marketing, the whole sort of uh, area of this uh, area of the business, and said, right, guys, we're transporting you all back to 1930s. So it's your job to make the paint, your job to get sales, it's your job to dispatch the paint, it's your job to quality control the paint, it's your job in terms of liaising with you know, the rest of the business and making this work. And when you give young people responsibility, they step up to the mark. So we started that initiative about three years ago in terms of doing it year on year, getting young people from the local schools and giving them an opportunity to run their own business. And what we've found is an incredible leap of both maturity and capability of these young people, uh, some of which now work full time in the business, one of which is um, training at the moment to be uh, hopefully our next accountant. Um, working on accounts department and it's been a wonderful success story for us but it's that belief it's that growth and it's that um and, and it's that giving of responsibility to the next generation um to you know to enable them to sort of grow and um, and become the very best that they can be and we've got a you know, real great belief in that and that again comes down to to what we're here to talk about which is the culture of the business and I'm really interested in, presumably the culture isn't something that is, is new because you're, what you're talking about there with the, the bringing the, the, the youngsters in to, to help give them responsibility is something that was initially started, albeit through necessity, back in, in the late 30s. Yes. But that presumably has been embedded within the business from that time, that there is that culture of having to, to kind of take responsibility to step up and, and has helped create the business that there is today. Yeah. Do you think there is, there is a, an event or, or something that is responsible for that culture or is it just something that is embraced by all that come and work at HMG? Um, well, I, th I think culture is the responsibility of everybody in the business. Um, I mean, I've mentioned before that I feel very blessed to work with a great team of people, um, you know, within the industry that we work in. Um, I think management also play a role. I think the ownership and um, top level of the business also plays a role in culture. Um I think it really matters and we believe it really, really matters that employees know what's happening in the business and feel engaged in every single level. So a few things that we do um, to facilitate that. So we have something called state of the business meeting. We have these four times a year. And on these meetings, what happens is we get all of our members of staff together. So it's 200 people on site in Manchester. Um, and we all get together in a great big room and we talk completely openly about how we're doing, what the accounts look like, what the financial performance of the business is looking like, and you know, broad sort of overview of the key figures. Because, of course, these are not things, or we believe they're not things, that should be talked about in a closed room between just the sort of directors or the managers. This, this, these are things that affect every single person in the business. Those yeah. 200 people go home, they have families to support, 
um, you know, the business provides for those 200 people. So for us, we believe it's almost our employees' right to know what's happening and therefore feel involved within those sort of high-level, or usually high-level numbers. We also um, really believe in taking our employees across to the customers that they serve. So HMG is split into various different departments. So we have departments that you know, specifically make paints for things like the rail industry, departments that specifically make paint for things like your know, heavy industry or, or the, the automotive industry. And we love taking our, um, our employees across to the places that the paint's actually used because we think that's a you know, real big thing as well. You know, where is that 2,000 litres or that 5,000 litre batch actually going and actually being used? And it makes people feel engaged at every single level. The final point within that question is... In our business, we're a, a very, very, very linear structure. We're not a top-down business at all. So anybody can go in and see the chairman or the managing director of the business at any time. Um, the door's always open, and you know, we see ourselves as being one big team. It's not, here are the directors, here are the managers, here are the, you know, the, the operatives. We're all working for the same thing. And we feel that that's something that is both appreciated and um, and well received from a cultural perspective. Absolutely, and you often hear businesses say, "Oh, there's an open door culture," and you very quickly get the impression that that's more um, something that is said than is actually practiced. But I know from the conversations we've had and some of the examples that you give that that's a genuine statement when it comes to to your business. And so I'm interested in why you, or as the business, why does the business feel that that culture is so important? Well, I mean, I think we feel it's important because you spend a big proportion of your life at work. And so as a, as a, as a business family, um, you know, we want people that are in the right job role, enjoying what they do, enjoying spending time with the people that they're working with, and enjoying the sort of team and the atmosphere that, that, that they're in. Um, and we believe that if you're doing that, you're going to get the very, very best out of people. Um, I mean, we, we touched on before about um, sort of yeah, generations of families within the business and, um, and, and not being a, a family business, being more a business family. Um, and to give one example out of many, um, you know, we have a family within our business called the Newtons. Um, John Newton um, has just completed 50 years service in the business and retired. Um, his son, Mike, is the manager of our maintenance department. His daughter, Sarah, works in our administration and also, um, to some extent, our, um, our maintenance department as well in terms of the administrative side of that. His other son, Paul, works in our cellulose department. And finally, his grandson's just started down in our dispatch department. So, so there really is sort of, you know, like three or four generations there of Newtons within the family business. And I could witter on for hours telling you about families and families and families working throughout the business and generations of families working within us. Um, and, you know, what I think that really sort of kind of boils down to is... If you've got multiple family members working within the family business, 
what that's a reflection of is they want their children, their relatives, their spouses, their grandchildren within the business. And God, that's something we're proud of. Um, because there's nothing more powerful than somebody saying, I want my son, I want my grandchildren to work within your family business. It, it, it proves to us in terms of in terms of owning family that we're doing something right. Um, and you know, it, it helps us in terms of uh, in terms of keeping our ear to the ground. Absolutely, and uh, I think traditionally, maybe 30, 40 years ago, it was probably more common that that family members would join the businesses that their um, parents worked in. But but given the the fact that our um, younger generations now are far more mobile than they were back then, it is a real testament to what's being created there, that there is this, and, and like you say, it's not a one-off. Is it something like, is it 60% of your employees have got a family member that works there as well? That's right, yeah. So, so I mean, that's a, a hugely impressive statistic, particularly, as we say, in today's day and age where it, it's very, very easy for people to be mobile when they're trying to, to seek out employment and be drawn to the, you know, the big city lights of London or whatever that, that floats floats their boat. So the fact that there there is this retention within families of working for HMG is a, is a real testament to that culture. Yeah, and 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 I think as well that part of that culture is a real sort of key understanding of work-life balance mm. and i'll mention that many times you know throughout our throughout our chat today um you know we have a culture in the business where departmental managers are given real sort of flexibility in terms of um you know, how they manage their own staff so what that means is um, occasionally you'll get people that'll want to finish a job, so they'll stay on a little bit later than closing time. Um, but you know, those people might um, then you know take an hour off when they you know on the Friday and go home a little bit early. That's flexibility there. Um, but also we do have a very 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 strong mantra um, of we don't want to encourage what we what we describe as competitive lateness. So we're very, very keen that people take their lunch hour. We're very keen that people take a morning break and an afternoon break. And we're very keen, you know, unless the circumstances are very unusual, that people actually do go home on time at 5 o'clock p.m., which is quite unusual, really, in today's culture. You know, how often do you see people sat at a desk with a sandwich on one hand, typing away and looking stressed in the other? And we really don't want people to be doing that. Um, so, you know, I probably mentioned to you the last time that we spoke that, you know, on site we have a table tennis room with three table tennis tables, an on site gym, five a side football pit, we have three bands on site with the guys that jam in various different rooms, a darts competition. And what this is to do with is saying, guys, in the middle of the day, stop what you're doing, stop looking at a computer screen, stop making paint. And actually go and do something like go to the gym or play some table tennis um, and don't think about making paint because it does you so, so much good when you come back in the afternoon, you feel refreshed, you feel invigorated. And actually, we'll get more out of you in the afternoon when you feel like that rather yeah. than just plowing on through. Yeah, because otherwise what happens is you're sat at your desk, you're eating your lunch, and then you get the so a little bit of a sugar rush from whatever you've eaten and then the inevitable lull around three o'clock where you kind of, oh, 
you're feeling um, lackadaisical and, and um, a, a bit um, tired. And so the, the, the productivity boost that must come from, from getting people in, energized at um, lunchtime probably means that there isn't this competitive lateness. I, I love that phrase, the, the competitive lateness. I've worked in some big offices where people would kind of sit there just, just to be the last person to leave because the, the boss was still there. They wouldn't necessarily be terribly busy um, at that stage. And, and that kind of, to me, sums up that competitive lateness of look how late I'm working, boss. And, um, and, and, and Russell, I mean, it's, it's no good. I mean, you know, we, we have a, a we, you know, I'm, I'm a great believer and we as a family are a great believer, but, you know, everybody is in business for commercial reasons. You've got to make money you know, and you've got to grow as a business or else you die. Um, however, businesses also, or a business should also be fun. Um, and so a lot of the things that we do and a lot of the things that we speak about with other businesses, um, I've spoken in the past and been called crazy for some of the business practices that we operate as HMG. Um, you know, why on earth do you do that? You know, that seems like a crazy thing to do. Yeah. But, but of course, you're missing the big picture if you say that. I mean, I'll give you one or two very, very quick examples. Yeah, please, that'd be great. Um, so every single year we have something called the Great HMG Cook-Off, um, which is a barbecue that happens essentially all day. We shut the factory for a day um, and a group of teams all come into work. So we have like a laboratory team and a maintenance team and a dispatch team and a production team and competitively cook um, different sort of dishes for the entire site. <laughs> you can imagine, you know, for 200 people, there's a fair amount of food going around. Yeah, and I bet the smell is amazing. Oh, honestly, well, next time, Russell, make sure you get yourself down. It's a good I event. Will. <laughs> um, but, 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 but honestly, you know, the, the people that are invited to this event are all current members of the HMG, HMG members of staff and HMG family, everybody who has ever worked for us. Um, so, of course, we get all the retirees, we get you know, all of the all various people who even you know, have moved on to other businesses that still come to these things. Um, and it's a great big day. We have a really, really nice time. We eat some delicious food. There's a few speeches. Um, everybody has a few drinks. And it's a lovely thing to do. But of course, it's a whole day's production that essentially disappears in the middle of the summer, which is a fairly busy time of year. Um, but it's so, so important from a cultural perspective in the business for what it does for everybody, for morale, for how much people enjoy it. Um, and you know, we do various things like that that we do because they feel like the right thing to do rather than they necessarily just make commercial sense. Business about far, far much more than making money. Yeah, but I'm imagining the knock-on effect is that sense of loyalty, that sense of belonging. It, it almost um, feels to me, it does feel to me, as if the business feels like a family that you are part of and that, that um, you're very careful with the people that you work with because you want to make sure that they're getting the best out of things rather than feeling completely run down and overwhelmed by work. Absolutely, and, and and the best way of thinking of it, thinking of it is, um, you know, Russell. I don't know whether you've got any siblings or brothers, sisters, or whatever. Um, but you know, it's how you would want your own family to be treated. Um, so you know, if you look around people and you see somebody walking along one day and they're looking a bit miserable, you'd want to ask them. You'd want to say, "Yeah, if they're okay, 
um, you do that with your own family. So, you know, you, you should and you should want to do that with your business family. Um, and, uh, you know, from a cultural perspective, uh, you know, these things can sound quite cheesy, really, when you say them, when you're talking about family members that aren't your family. Um, but in terms of um, the, you can almost look at it as almost like raw data, which is a, a strange way of looking at it. But in terms of things like employee retention, in terms of things like length of service, um, these things are all very, very good. And we take great pride in terms of the sort of culture and the um, and the business philosophy that we that we try and employ. But you know, in all business, you've just got to try and do the very best that you can possibly do. So my my view on it is, and part of our you know, overall business philosophy is, if you can go to bed at night and put your head on the pillow and think today I've done the right thing, then you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Completely. And I'd like to go back, if we can, just, just briefly to um, the structure of the business. You mentioned that it's a, a linear structure and that everybody has access to uh, the management team. What does a management team consist of? You mentioned the, the MD and the chairman. What other structure is there in place around that kind of management yeah, absolutely. So the chairman of our business um, is still Brian Folder, which is my grandfather, age 87, and still going exceptionally strong. Um, just proving that when you're in a family business, you never run out of ideas. When you go around to my grandfather's house, um, his garage and, and most of his sort of workbenches are still covered in different samples paint and adhesive and he's still probably one of the very best people um, around in terms of looking at a a paint and telling Uh you whether it's any good or not nobody will test it any tougher than he will (laughs) Um, and then um, managing director of the business is um, is my my father uh, John Folder Um, and then in terms of the other directors of the business the majority of our directors are homegrown Right. So um, if you take our technical director, Steve Grossman, um, he joined the business as a young man, um, you know, still within his sort of teens, early 20s, um, and has been with the business for you know, 30, 40 years. Um, so as much as we possibly can, our directors and our team of operations board are comprised of our own people that we sort of home grow, really, in HMG. Um, and the depth of understanding that you get having sort of done the jobs and sort of seen it all before is really, really important to us. Of course, there are some director level roles that don't necessarily apply to that. Um, So you you can imagine that, you know, things like financial director, um, you know, it's rare that, um, you know, it's rare that you get somebody who started, you started off, um, you know, an operational role, um, then sort of, you know, going going across to financial director. Um, But, uh, but, you know, it's the home growingness that probably is, it makes us quite unique. And then when you sort of, you know, when you move across the line in terms of the other members of your team, um, you have departmental managers and sort of departmental team leaders, um, and then you have essentially sort of like your operational operatives, um, you know, that sit, um, you know, that sit, um, you know, within those those individual teams. But it's nice, and, and we like the culture of having small teams um, that, that sort of work in small departments rather than sort of like one great big enormous room where everybody's working. It works yeah. better for us, that. 
Yeah. And the, the reason I ask that, and it, it goes back to something we, we touched on earlier, and that, that you're fifth gen, uh, and the business has grown from um, what seem to be two employees to start off with, so your great-granddad and then your great-great-granddad, um, to, to 200 people. It has a relatively um, small management team. Right? It's, it's your grandfather and your, your father in the, the chairman and MD role. And then the, the people that are holding the roles that have the influence over um, the, the staff that work for you are those that have been brought up through that culture as well. So it's, um, I, I, don't, I don't mean this to sound um, a, as a negative, but I imagine it's relatively easy to maintain that culture because it's something that is lived and breathed by everybody within the business rather than it being there's high staff turnover. We have to start again every six months to try and get this message across that this is the type of business that we are. So, so it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that creating and maintaining this culture helps to create and maintain the culture and thus the business. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, you know, something that is that is quite unusual for us as a business is, I talk, I've mentioned before about this kind of multi-generationalness of generations working through the business. And when we have a new position that opens up in the factory, of course, you know, you've got to do everything sort of fairly. You've got to do your interview processes completely fairly. But it's very rare that we have to, you know, advertise very much for a job because you tend to find that people know us, you know, we're known a lot in the local community um, and, you know, we're known as a good place to work. So, you know, when jobs open up, you tend to have kind of like a lot of applicants quite quickly and there's usually sort of one or two people within the business that can sort of say, oh, yeah, no, they're a nice guy, you know, give them, you know, bring them an interview or whatever. Um, so, you know, you end up with this kind of, you know, like you say, self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Um, but, you know, it's, uh, it, so, you know, that, that's, that's good. Yeah, I, I agree. And I mentioned right at the very, very outset in the introduction to the show that um, this the culture has created some, some issues. And again, not to paint that in a negative light, because I think this is a hugely um, positive issue that's been created. Yes. But, but you have requests from um, current and previous members of staff to to be buried on site, is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, I mean, we have two former members of um, of our of our team that are buried on site. Um, they uh, they they both asked. Um, sort of, I should say one asked first, and then the other person sort of got the idea in his head and and asked us as well. Um, and we've got seven other people with similar requests who are both former employees and st- and some employees that are still working for us. Um, we've even had one request of somebody asking for their ashes to be made into paint and painted onto the department that he works in. <laughs> so so you know, it's, it's an unusual problem to have. Um, but what this really kind of boils down to is what a great honour that is to be asked. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we feel enormously proud that people working in the business would ask for such a thing. Um, and, um, you know, every every morning, you know, when we sort of walk up to our, to our staff canteen, you go past this little garden um, where Ronnie and Albert are, are, you know, are at rest. And, um, and, you know, when you're walking past, you know, you sort of tip your hat, you say good morning to them and off you go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so they sort of they live on as legends. We never, ever forget them. Um, and, um, you know, when you know, it's, it's an obvious point, but you spend an awful lot of your time and your working, your working life in work. Um, yeah. And so, you know, 
the, the family that you've got in work, it, I'm not going to say that it's as important as the family you've got at home, but you know, it's 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 a very important thing for people. Um, and um, you know, once again, a great great honour to be asked. So it's something we feel very very proud of. Completely, and and I I'm struggling to think of any other examples I've ever heard of where people would want to be um, buried at work. Maybe the odd vicar, but, but yes. I think that just comes comes with the territory. Um, but 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 it is something that is it's unusual. But but when you boil down the the kind of reasons behind it, it's a huge testament to um, how deeply they care for the business as well. Absolutely, but 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 not a testament to how they care for the business. It's a testament to the people of the business. It's a testament to the the community of people that we have within HMG. You know, for for me, HMG is not about the the bricks, the mortar, the machines, um, and and you know the 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 raw materials even that we that we use to make paint. It's about the community of people. It's about the company that we keep. Um, that make the business truly what it is. Uh, and you mentioned there, and you've mentioned throughout that you spend time uh, working with the local community and, and doing things with, as you say, the Next Gen Coatings Group and and things like that. Um, c- can you expand on, on some of the sort of projects that you're involved in f- from a community perspective? Yeah, so... Um, I think all businesses, and you can tell I'm very opinionated, I always start things with, I think, um, <laughs> I think all businesses have a responsibility to look after their local community, but it's it's more than a responsibility. It's a, it's, you've got to kind of want to do it. Mm. Um, you know, our, our site is in Collyhurst in Manchester and Collyhurst historically and still is one of the top five most deprived areas in the UK. Right. But Collyhurst is our home. Um, you know, it's where we're from. It's, it's, it's where we've been born and raised. So we should all want that responsibility in terms of wanting to improve it and make it better. And we we believe that you know if every business, whether it be your corner shop to multi million pound businesses or billion pound businesses, if every business looks after their little community, their little area where they live, the whole country becomes greater as a whole. So you know I've mentioned briefly about the sort of next generation coatings that we do with the local academy and the other secondary schools. If you go a step behind that. We also um, do a lot of work with our local primary schools. So, for example, St Malachy's Primary School, which is literally two minutes around the corner from our site. My father is a local school governor of, um, of that school and also chair of governors for the whole of North Manchester. And you know, we do a lot in terms of going into primary schools, talking about the science industries. I myself am ambassador for the science industry, going to primary schools and sort of drumming up a bit of excitement and support. Um, and um, working with the local community is something that fundamentally you've got to want to do it above and beyond, quote unquote, kind of CSR. Um, you know, we don't like the phrase corporate social responsibility because responsibility says you've sort of got to do it. You know, it's your responsibility to do it, not responsibility. You've got to want to do it. Um, so, you know, a few kind of strange examples. 
um, we've historically been very, very bad at telling people about the things that we do in our local community because we've never really done them for for the CSR reasons. We've never done them to sort of say that we've done them. We've done them because it feels like the right thing to do. So um, you know, as, a, as a couple of kind of small examples, um, obviously, you know, there's the sort of primary school, secondary school stuff that we do there. Um, there's the um, things like the small cinema project, which is um, a, a project of um, essentially building and painting small uh, community cinemas that a you know, small community can go to and, um, and watch the movies. Um, we support the local real junk food project, which takes produce from um, uh, from uh, supermarkets that is going to be thrown out. As you know, there's thousands and thousands of tons of food thrown away every year from the supermarket chains, um, and we take that food or real junk food, should I say, take that food, um, and uh, and you know they uh, they have a service where you can go in and pay anything you want to eat food that was going to be thrown out. Um, you know, the meals. Um, we're also big supporters of um, one of our local nuns called Sister Rita. Uh, she had a programme on BBC Four, I think it was, or BBC Three or whatever it was, um, called Sister Rita to the Rescue. And she essentially um, you know, has got set up a, an organisation in Collyhurst called the Lally Centre, which is to do with community support. It's to do with support for people who may be in abusive relationships. It acts as a drop-in centre. Um, it acts as a food bank. Um, and you know the guys at HMG, you know, we went down, we helped paint that, we donated the paint, we provided the furniture for the Lally Centre. Um, so you know things that we feel enormously passionate about because these help our local community become a nicer place and become a better place. As, as a final one on that, and you know, I could go on about community stuff for for hours. Um, we planted a woodland uh, about 20 or 30 years ago um, next to our site that we call the New Era Woods. And that's used for the local police force. They use it to like walk the dogs, local little park for people to use. Um, and uh, it's also a community area for the local schools that they can go and, go and do sort of outdoor lessons with a little sort of pond that's got your know, poles and all sorts of things in it. So, you know, Collyhurst in in previous generations and previous years, especially if you go back to sort of like the mid-1940s, moving into the 1950s, 1960s, had been very severely sort of bombed in the war. There were no trees, there was no greenery whatsoever. It was just a sort of muddy industrial, post-industrial revolution mess. Um, and you know, we all have this philosophy, um, you know, and this is going back to my sort of grandfather's time of how can we make our local area nicer? And part of the thing that they came up with was let's plant a load of trees, let's plant a load of greenery down Collyhurst Road and plant a little park and a piece of land that we own, um, and um, and you know, help it to become a bit more of a green space. And that's evolved over the years into the new era woods, which once again is something that is lovely for the local community and the people of HMG. Completely. And I think one of the, the points you picked up on, which is so important, is wanting to do it rather than feeling obliged to do it. And yeah. the, the the key, I think, and, and I'm, I might be slightly wrong here, but, but the people that you're helping in your local community 
the local community obviously will, will benefit directly. It will make the, the place a, a better place to be and, and a brighter place to be. But they're not necessarily your customers who are going to go, okay, well, you've done this for me, therefore I'm going to go and do this for you. It's, it's not something that is commercially motivated in its, in its purest sense. Obviously, there's the, the, the great things that happen when businesses with great cultures, when you see that, 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 that they tend to be more successful. Um, but, but wanting to do it is far um, more difficult, again, as businesses grow, than just feeling as if, oh, look, this is something, we're going to give our staff an hour a year to, to go and do some charity work because it, it ticks the box on that CSR yeah. questionnaire we, we got given. That it's a huge and really important difference, I think. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna use a quote from my father um, now, and one of his quotes is, "If you want something, first give it away." Um, and what what that kind of means to to us as a business, because he says that all the time, um, is. You're, you're repaid with generosity 10 times over. Um, and, you know, we, we, we do have some belief in terms of sort of like karma and, you know, going to bed, putting your head on the pillow and doing the right thing. Um, so, you know, things like, um, you know, we have, a, we have an on-site canteen and, and you can imagine an on-site canteen for 200 people produces a lot of food at lunchtime. Um, and, uh, you know, some of that food is not is not eaten. Um, the food that we have left, we pack up into boxes and we take after work um, with a small team of people headed up by um, Sarah Newton. And I say one of the Newtons, the name keeps popping up. Um, and, um, you know, going around Manchester and giving hot meals to the homeless people. Um, and, you know, there's a couple of sort of drop-in places that we go for that where you can sort of distribute out and, um, and you know, provide, provide a hot meal. Um, now, this is food that otherwise would just be thrown in the bin. And you know what? I think 99% of people, honestly, honestly, would go, love it in the skip, um, because it would be far much more, far more, far easier and far more cost efficient to do so. Completely. Um, but actually, does it feel like the right thing to do? No, it doesn't. So therefore, should we go out and you know, should we you know, make that little bit of extra effort? Yeah, I think we really should. And you know, it's 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 a nice thing. You know, it's the right thing yeah. to do. Yeah, and it just again makes it um, for for the people associated with the business something else to be rightly proud of. I, absolutely, and and you know, there's a. I mean, you can tell. I am bursting with stories with regards to sort of local community, looking after your local community and businesses, regardless of their size, looking after their own patch. Um, this is something that I've been ingrained with and HMG is ingrained with from the top right the way through um, you know, to every member of the team. So it's something that we will always bang the drum on about um, and, uh, and, and talk about with a huge degree of passion. I hope it sort of comes across really as sort of genuine and passionate because we feel so, so strongly about this as an area um, and, um, you know, would, would absolutely love you know, more businesses, especially in our industry, to sort of get involved and, um, and, and do stuff like this. Yeah, and I think it's something where 
but in particular family businesses who, who perhaps aren't beholden to um, shareholders in the in the same way as as um, non-family businesses are it's easier for that to be something that they just take by the scruff of the neck and say right we're going to do this now yes um, and we might have to learn we might have to to make some mistakes along the way but actually let's just let, let's get the family's passion and personality out into the uh, the local community and and like you say i think um good things happen to good people and, and good businesses so it, it's going to be something that that you get um if nothing else a, a huge amount of uh, emotional well-being from from doing yeah yeah ab- ab- absolutely that's exactly it and um you know when we we i talked before briefly about the sort of state of the business meetings that we hold and um you know the, the sort of telling everybody about the sort of financials and fi- open financials with everybody in the company um but one of the other things that we talk about in these meetings is what would people like to do what's the general consensus of everybody um, in terms of some of our community stuff that we do, you know, what's the general consensus in terms of some of the charity work that we do, and what's the some of the general consensus in terms of the fun stuff that we want to do next year? So, um, as an example of that, um, when we, you know, because every year we do the HMG barbecue. And somebody suggested that we do with the HMG equivalent of the Great British Bake Off. Um, so essentially, people sort of bringing in cakes, and you know, you'd pay an entry fee. Um, all the money and all the proceeds go to charity, and we declare kind of like a winner every year who's made the best cake. Um, and you know, that was mooted um, by one of our girls from the accounts department, um, and suddenly that just became you know became something that we do, and now that's a yearly event. Um, but you know, it, that I guess it's that feeling amongst the work uh, against amongst the workforce and the team that we have here of your voice being heard, and and everybody having the opportunity to chip in and and say as they feel and what they think, um, and to say so without fear. Um, yeah. You know, if you stood up in front of some organisations and criticised the business in front of the managing director. I can imagine the response that you might be greeted with could be rather negative. Um, You know, we actively encourage people saying, you know, come and see us, tell us what you think the issues are, tell us what you think we can be doing that's better in the business. And some of our best and brightest ideas don't actually come from, um, you know, necessarily the directors sat on the top tables. They come from the guys that are down on the factory floor making the stuff every single day or dispatching the stuff or creating the marketing for the stuff or developing stuff in the R&D labs um, and saying, actually, we could be doing this better by doing this, that or the other. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, Just conscious of um, time, and and I think we we could um, spend uh, an awful lot of time I'd uh, be really interested in, in more of the stories around the, the community side of things. Um, but that might be one for a, for another show. You know um, me, again. Russell, I could go up uh, for hours. As long as I ask you on on air, I think it's easy for you to say yes that way. So uh, if I ask you now, we'll, we'll, we'll get that one penciled in for a later date as well. But in terms of um, the, the cultural element of the business, what do you have a tip that you would give to other family businesses who might be looking to build or communicate their culture, um, both within their business and I guess within their communities as well? Yeah, I I think it probably um, comes back to uh, some of the areas that we've touched on already. I think probably top tip 
would be internally um, engaging employees on every single level. So that's the engaging them in terms of, if you can, letting them know as much detail um, as possible in terms of you know how the business is doing, financial performance, profitability, um, and you know what's actually happening because the business to your employees is just as important as the business to the somebody who sits in the owner's chair. Um, you know, so so you know they have they have a, a right to know um, you know a lot of a lot of these um, a lot of these sort of numbers. Um, so we think that's important. Um, we think that let's say. Relating to that sort of engagement at every level, um, sort of your things like customer trips, um, you know, so sort of your employees, sort of showing them where the stuff they make is actually going, um, and most of all, kind of that non-top-down structure of that everybody feeling like they're working towards the same goal and a part of a big team. In terms of outside the organisation, in terms of culture, um, culture with the local community, um, it's very, very, very simple, which is go to bed at night, put your head on the pillow and think today I've done the right thing, the right thing with my community and the right thing within my business. And you'll always get a good response because if people see that genuinely and from the heart you are doing things that you believe will make things better um, and that you're doing it because you want to do it, not because you feel like it's something that business should do, um, then people really buy into that. And, you know, I'm very lucky as a fifth generation that I've come into a business with a culture that already has that. It's already built that over 87 or 88 years of being in business. Um, um, you know, through from my great grandfather, my grandfather, and my father. Um, so, but in terms of actually building that from the ground up, it's just about relentlessly doing the right thing. Fantastic. And there's one story I, I meant to um, uh, mention earlier, which um, if we if we can just cover before we uh, before we sign off, uh, and I I think I'm right, but. But didn't you have an alien head in your loft? Yes, indeed. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so that that comes back to um, uh, me being scarred as a child, really mentally scarred. <laughs> um, we did the paint. Um, I mentioned before about film and TV paint. Yeah. And we did the paints for the original Alien film. Uh-huh. So um, you can imagine when Alien was actually sort of first done, the Alien heads were made out of a, a str- quite strange sort of expanded foam material that was then painted and coated in uh, and a black product that we um, we manufactured here at HMG. And this was done on a very, very short time scale at the time um, because essentially they you know they tried some other paints they hadn't worked and all fallen off this strange material and we developed something for them very very quickly. So as a gift for um, the sort of very quick development work that we did for them, they gave us one of the original props from of the Alien heads. Now, of course, this is way, way before Alien was ever a sort of popular film. So, you know, this is given to my father, and he goes sort of, great, you know, thanks very much. I think, what on earth am I going to do with this? Um, so, naturally, so I took it back home, showed it to my mother, who said, well, that's not staying in the house. Um, and, um, you know, rather sort of quickly, it was put up in the loft. 
<laughs> so I have memories as a sort of, you know, sort of eight or ten year old boy being sent up in the loft to get the Christmas de- decorations and being scarred for life. <laughs> the black alien head staring out of the shadows looking. Fantastic. I mean, even to this day, 31 years old, you know, I still don't go up into the loft these days. But also, like, you know, <laughs> oh, don't blame me. Shoulder. <laughs> yeah, what else is up there? But the strange thing is for us on that, I mean, once again, it goes down to the, you know, whatever you want give it away first philosophy because we gave the paint away to the guys you know with the alien set for free um, you know it was one of these things where we sort of thought oh you know it's only a tiny amount of pay you know because you don't need a huge amount for you know uh, for a few alien heads it was probably only about sort of you know, five liters or ten liters of paint and of course what they gave us in return was at the time something that really wasn't worth any money this alien head and now, of course, you know, many years later, it's a bit of an iconic film. And, uh, you know, we sort of taken it out of the loft, dusted it off a bit and thought, blimey, you know, we should probably put this on display somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. It's a great story. I remember chuckling away to it um, when you told it at the conference. Uh, I can just imagine <laughs> opening the loft, turning the light on and being uh, presented with an alien head. Oh, Russell, with, honestly, uh... I mean, probably, <laughs> probably for another day and, um, and another radio show, there are so many of these little stories that we've got from the from sort of 88 years of history. Uh, I mean, I'll just leave you with one other that you've not heard, which is in my grandfather's era. We had a, a customer from the, um, an agricultural customer, and we were supplying coatings in for farmyard machinery and farm machines. And one day he phoned up my grandfather and said, Brian, you've got a real favour to ask. I'm entering a, a competition um, with, a, with a pig of mine, um, you know, to win sort of like a, a competition with this, you know, sort of like where all farmers get together and to show off their pigs. And he said, but the pig has got a sort of a, a, a birthmark, like a birth defect on its backside. Um, would it be possible if I could bring the pig in and you could colour match it so I could just touch <laughs> in a little area on, on its sort of like backside? <laughs> Um, oh, so my grandfather sort of said, uh, you know, yeah, okay, you know, bring it in and we'll see what we can do. Now, we produce coatings for things like, you know, coating um, sheep's wool, you know, for uh, farmers to identify their sheep, and also coatings for the toy and hobby industry, which are skin-safe, uh-huh. toy regulation, um, tested, um, and, you know, designed that you can essentially eat them and they won't do you any harm. Yeah. So we got a system in place, got this pig in, um, in HMG, and it was enormous, you know, great big, like, pot-bellied pig the size of a table sort of thing. <laughs> Um, and using sort of like sprayed out panels, we basically colour matched this pig and just touched up the pig on site before it went away to the show. Um, so, so of all the strange things in your history to count, we rarely get much stranger than the backside of a prize-winning pig that did end up winning the show. Brilliant. I was going to ask. It, it, it would complete the story if it won, so I'm, I'm really pleased. <laughs> That is excellent. Um, so, so I think what what we've learned, obviously, it, it, you can hear when you talk the passion and, and belief that you have in um, the, your family business and the testament that the culture that's been created has um, had some, some really impressive um, knock-on effects that are, as you say, based on doing the right thing. Um, so, so hopefully our audience can, can take away um, some really valuable lessons from there. Um, if, if people want to get 
um, in touch with you or, or find out more about you, where can they do that? Yeah, so the, the easiest way to do that is if you type into Google HMG Paint, um, then you'll find us very, very quickly. Um, or alternatively, it's www.hmgpaint.com or hmgpaints.com, either which works because we've got both domain names. Fantastic. Okay, and we will um, put the links in the show notes for the show. Um, but until next time, Jonathan, thank you very much indeed for your time. It's been a, a fascinating chat and uh, I've really enjoyed it. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks very much again, Russell. And thanks again for having me. It's been a delight. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to leave us a review, please feel free to do so on iTunes. Or if you want to get in touch, you can find out more information at www.fambiz.com podcast.com. We'll see you again soon.